First of all, thank you for your kind gift there, uh, past appreciation. And I've said many times, right, what's my, my little saying? I would not want to be doing anything else. I would not want to be doing it anywhere else. So uh, extremely content, very grateful uh, to be in this role that, that uh, God has allowed me to do. And if you're not familiar uh, on or around Reformation Sunday, I do a, a biography to remind us, I think this is the, the 15th one, to remind us of the Reformation, the recovery of the gospel, but also that we are continually reforming. We continually need to uh, make sure the gospel is uh, part of our life, not part of our lives, as I said last week in the message, uh, part of every part of our life. Uh, it affects everything we think, say, and do. And this morning, and also, uh, as Seth said, it's International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Clearly, uh, Adoniram Judson is in line with that as well. He was born the same year the U.S. Constitution was ratified and George Washington was elected president. So that puts us, uh, you understand the historical context there. Uh, he became the very first missionary ever to be sent for America. Uh, it's just an astounding uh, fact right there. In his first 19 years in Burma, he spent one and a half of those years in the death prison. Can you imagine why they call it the death prison? Because very few people ever made it out alive. His first wife, he had three wives, uh, not the same time. Uh, his first wife, Anne, bore three children to Adoniram. All of them died. The first baby, they, they didn't even name, that was on as they sailed from India to Burma. Second child, Roger, lived 17 months and died. The third, Maria, lived to be age two, outlived her mother by six months and died, exactly six months. Judson would go on to lose two wives and seven of his 13 children to various diseases in the jungles of Burma. When the British invaded Burma, hundreds of soldiers died in battle. Thousands died from cholera. He and Anne labored for Six long years before God gave them their very first convert, which you can imagine, first of all, the, the, the groundbreaking work that needed to be done there, translating uh, Burmese language. He started with the Gospel of Matthew and then eventually went uh, to the whole Bible, a first gospel track, uh, just making relationships, all the work that, that, that pre-evangelism that goes into that. And then finally, at year six, first convert. By year 10, they still only had 18 converts, so not a lot, and some of them, were, some of them died, some of them moved far away, so the church was, was beginning to shrink again, so not a lot of encouragement there. In his 20th year, Judson made the following entry into his journal. He said, some come from two or three months' journey from the borders of Siam and China, and they say this, sir, we hear that there is an eternal hell. We are afraid of it. Do give us a writing that would tell us how to escape it. That would have been encouraging, right? Others come from hundreds of miles away. Sir, we have seen a writing that tells about an eternal God. Are you the man that gives away such writings? We want to know the truth before we die. Others come from the interior of the country and ask, Are you Jesus Christ, man? Give us a writing that tells us about Jesus Christ. These men had heard about Judson's gospel tracts, and the Spirit of God prompted them to, to leave their pagan beliefs and seek out the ultimate truth of the gospel. 
And this last question in Adoniram's journal, I want to make the, the theme of the biography this morning and also the question I want to leave you with this morning. Are you Jesus Christ's man? Are you Jesus Christ's woman? I share these annual biographies to encourage you with the faithfulness of those who have gone before us. But more than encourage you this morning, this morning, I want to challenge you. And now for several weeks, I've been praying about this message that God might use it to call one or more of you to a higher level of obedience or service. Now we understand, especially when you're done listening, there will never be another Adoniram Judson. No one can duplicate his life, but any believer can duplicate his obedience. Are you Jesus Christ's man? In other words, is there anything you are not willing to do in pursuit of following Jesus? Are you willing to go to a foreign land to become a missionary? Would you be willing to, to serve in some other form of vocational ministry right here in our country? If God calls you to be or to do anything, would you obey? Have you ever said to the Lord, have you prayed earnestly to the Lord, I am willing to go wherever and do whatever you ask of me? Are you Jesus Christ's man? Even Judson himself was not always Jesus Christ's man. Though his father was a pastor and he learned the gospel and the Bible all throughout his life, he wasn't saved until he was 20 years old. But he had a good start. Uh, the Lord blessed him. He was an absolutely brilliant child. His mom taught him to read in a week. His father was away, and she taught him to read. And when he returned, uh, Judson, at three years old, Judson read an entire chapter of a Bible out loud to his father. His father knew that his oldest son was destined for greatness, and you can imagine uh, the birth of America, he was thinking not, not only perhaps some gospel ministry-related greatness, but greatness perhaps even on the political realm as well. And the strange thing is, though, he knew he was destined for greatness, and he often told him so. I mean, he really built him up uh, that something amazing was in his future. He was always the smartest kid in the room, and usually way ahead of everybody else including when he graduated as valedictorian of Brown University at age 19, narrowly surpassing and besting his closest friend, Jacob Eames, for that honor. At that stage, he had gained the whole world, yet he had lost his faith. He told his father that he could not believe that the Bible was anything but the work of men, any more than were the Quran or the sacred writings of Buddha, great as his principles might be. Even Jesus, he was certainly the Son of Man, but almost certainly not the Son of God. That obviously broke his parents' heart, but even more than that, he left home to go to New York to join the theater, and it was a, a seedy endeavor in those days. Thankfully, it didn't work out for him, so he started his way home on horseback, and he's staying in an inn one night, and he was next door, uh, just a very, very thin wall, almost like a blanket, next to what sounded like a dying man. He's there, laying, he's laying awake half the night, listening to this man coughing and gasping for air. And Judson, at his age, was certainly no stranger to death, but, but this experience absolutely unnerved him, because as he listened to that man all night long, he wondered, the thought occurred to him, is he prepared for death? 
Then as he thought about that, he referred to himself and he said, am I prepared for death? Was he ready? He knew about his father's God, but he did not believe in his father's God. When he awoke to settle the bill, he asked the owner about the man and he told him he was dead. Ananiram asked the owner if he, he knew the man's name. He said, oh, yes, young man from college in Providence. His name was Jacob Eames, his best friend in college with whom he had just graduated months before. This experience shook him to his core. He was convinced, of course, it could not have been a coincidence. And worse still was he knew that his friend Jacob was a deist and certainly not prepared for death. And almost immediately, God gave him this overwhelming sense that the God of the Bible was the real God. So for the next two months, he was busy. He was repenting of his rebellion and completely trusting in Christ and trusting Christ for his future. A year later, he began to feel the call to become a missionary. Like all calls, it's something that starts at one point and develops over time, becomes stronger and stronger. He relates... It was during a solitary walk in the woods while meditating and praying on the subject and feeling half inclined to give it up that the command of Christ, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, was presented to my mind with such clearness and power that I came to a full decision. And though great difficulties appeared in my way, resolved to obey the command. And there were great, immense Difficulties. Think about this. There had never been a missionary sent from America to a foreign land. It didn't exist. Such a person didn't exist. And since there were no missionaries, guess what? There were no missionary sending organizations. They did not exist either. So before he could even think about sailing anywhere, they had to first form a missions organization. They had to, to get officer for that. They had to gather a lot of, of money uh, to go tour that before he could even take his first steps. So the amount of faith there is absolutely staggering. I've got eight principles that I've gleaned from his life uh, this morning, and I want to walk you through those. The first one is he's married well, and all the guys say, amen. That's, that's uh, always the, the right start, men and women. So while all this was happening, while the mission organizations were, were being formed, his eye was fixed on a young woman uh, whose name was Anne. He had only met her one time, but was convinced he was supposed to marry her, so he sent her father this request. Imagine reading this. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory, with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior, from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? He had met her one time and sent this letter. Anyone convinced of their marriage after 
such, such a, a, a one-time meeting. So you're Anne now, you're Anne's father, how, oh how, do you respond to this? I mean, such a letter has never been written because such an endeavor has never been attempted before. Well, this was Anne's reply. I feel willing and expect, if nothing in providence prevents, to spend my days in this world in heathen lands. Now that was uh, not a pejorative word, that's just the, the common word of unbelievers. Yes, Lydia, I have come... I have about come to the determination to give up all my comforts and enjoyments here, sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends, and go where God in his providence shall see fit to place me. See the the double mention there of the word providence of God's clear leading in her life. Anne learned the, the Burmese language actually much faster than her husband. He eventually became an expert in language because he had to, uh, to do all that, that uh, translation work, which, by the way, uh, I understand that his translation of the Bible is still pretty much the, the gold standard of Bible translations in the Burmese language to this day. But she actually got way ahead of him in terms of being able to converse with the Burmese people. She said this, My mornings are busily employed in giving directions to the servants, providing for the family, etc., I have found by a year's experience that it is the most direct way I could have taken to acquire the language, as I am frequently obligated to speak Burman all day. I can talk and understand others better than Mr. Judson, so she was uh, ahead of him, though he knows more about the nature and construction of the language. So she got a, a head start on him. Number two, he was committed to God's word despite every cost. Now, that's important. You can say you're committed to God's word, but when something begins to cost you because of your commitment to it, that really is uh, the the telling point. Here's an example of it. Judson was a Congregationalist, which doctrinally is sort of close to Presbyterian. The the main idea here is that he believed in infant baptism. He believed and preached that. On his initial voyage to India... He changed his mind about baptism. He was, he was studying it intently. I mean, what else are you going to do on a several-month voyage? So he spent that time in the Word of God, and he became convinced that believers' baptism was the correct view. Now, understand, he was sent out as a Congregationalist, but then became a Baptist. Do you understand what that means? That means that his sending missions organization, which had not existed before, no longer exists for him. They're no longer supporting him. So now he's in India and eventually in Burma and somehow needs to begin a Baptist missions organization, you know, thousands of miles from home and no way to communicate with anybody. It's amazing that ever happened. But the point is he knew it was going to cost him that and he went for it anyway because he was convinced by the word of God. He became a Baptist, landed in India and the most famous Baptist, uh, was there, William Carey. He'd been there for decades already. They actually uh, stayed with him for a while and actually were baptized by William Carey. Stayed there until they figured out where they were going to land exactly because they, they didn't know yet. Another example was, was this. After 33 straight years in Burma, Judson got to go home from America for the one and only time for a few months. And when he got there, he was treated like a rock star. Everyone wanted him to speak at their church and missionary conferences. A biographer writes this, Adoniram had been the subject of thousands of sermons and hundreds of thousands of prayers. 
Thousands had named their children for him. Scarcely any celebrity, any public figure, any hero could hope to rival the interest aroused by the visit of Adoniram Judson to the United States. So that was the level of expectation. And they all begged him to tell these harrowing stories of missionary life in Burma. You can imagine, uh, after 33 years, the amount of stories. And they've, of course, read about so many of them already. And his third wife, Emily, had a conversation with him, and it went like this. Uh, he, he begins, well, I'm sure I gave them a story, the most thrilling one that could be conceived of. And she said, but they had heard it before. They wanted some, something new of a man who had just come from the other side of the world. Then I'm glad they have it to say that a man coming from the other side of the world had nothing better to tell them than the wondrous story of Jesus' dying love. Isn't that great? Uh, he could have uh, amazed them and wowed them with these missionary stories. And he said, you know what's more amazing than that is the gospel of Jesus' love for you. Thirdly, he was willing to suffer but did not seek out a martyrdom. Some people just seem reckless in this, uh, but he was not. Now, everyone had told them, whatever you decide, don't go to Burma. That's the very last place you should go. It's far too dangerous for missionaries. Don't go to Burma. Everyone said that. William Carey's son actually had spent a few years there, but made no headway whatsoever, sailed back to India. So in all their planning and all their praying, they did everything they could to avoid going to Burma. Yet God just revealed the will, their, his will to them. It was like a funnel. Uh, despite uh, everyone telling them, don't go, and they're praying that they didn't really want to go, it just felt they had no choice. The clarity of God's will was that clear. And there was much danger, uh, but they were also constantly changing their tactics, their missionary strategy to avoid greater persecution. So they're willing to be to suffer, but they, they did not seek out suffering. They avoided suffering when they could. For example, they sent one couple away because it was too dangerous. At one point, they had this little uh, church, and they stopped worshiping during the Buddhist festivals because that was a more dangerous time to do that. They befriended and sought help from government officials to request additional religious freedom and religious liberty so they could uh, do their missionary work more freely. One time they left for seven months until the threat of persecution died down. So they were faithful and they trusted the Lord, but they were not reckless. Do you see the balance there they're trying to strike? And during that whole time, Anne was sick almost the entire time. She returned to the United States uh, for two years and four months to try to regain her health. The last 10 months of that time, he didn't know, he hadn't heard from her, so he didn't know if she's alive, he didn't know if she's dead, when she's coming back, and then she just shows up one day. But can you imagine being away for two years and four months knowing almost nothing? That's the kind of sacrifices they made together. And Judson experienced all manner of persecution in his 38 years in Burma, but as I've already uh, mentioned, the worst occurred during his year and a half in the death prison. Beginning the very first night in prison, they were all hung upside down all night long. Quoting now, with jests and jokes, they lowered the long bamboo pole from the ceiling, passed it between the fettered legs of the prisons, prisoners, and hoisted it up with the aid of block and tackle. Gradually, the feet of the prisoners rose into the air until only their shoulders and head rested on the floor. All night long, every night. Eleven months, 
into his imprisonment, the guards brought in a caged lion into the prison right next to them, probably for some psychological intimidation. And it worked because all the prisoners all the time were wondering, I'm going to be fed to that lion, and then it's going to be your turn. It absolutely freaked them out. Strangely enough, they didn't even feed the lion. The lion eventually died of starvation, so the cage was just lying there open, and he begged the, uh, the prison guards, can you put me in the lion's cage instead of being uh, fettered to these other prisoners? He thought a cage of a dead lion was far better than what he was experiencing. To make matters worse, shortly after he was in prison, remember a year and a half total, shortly after he was first in prison, Anne discovered she was pregnant with their third child, Maria. And during that time, she's constantly caring for her husband because he's got no way to care for himself. So she would walk four-mile round trip every single day just to bring him a small amount of food to keep him alive. Uh, after, and she's pregnant, right, that whole time. After their daughter, Maria, was born, she made the same four-mile round trip carrying her infant daughter. And he's obviously, imagine his concern for her while he's lying there upside down in prison half the day. But he believed that she would come to no harm. He said the Burmese had always treated her with respect. Her steadfast courage, persistence, and utter honesty had won their admiration. Lying was so embedded in this culture that anybody was honest at all really stood out to them. And Anne really won their admiration, as he says. Eventually, during he's still in prison now, baby Maria contracted smallpox. After she recovered, Anne caught a horrible case of dysentery. She's no longer able to carry it for Adoniram or baby Maria. So he begged the guards that he could be let out of the lion's cage for a couple hours each day, carry little baby Maria all around town, and beg other women to, to give Maria just a little bit of milk. The, um, ironically, the, the British invasion is, first of all, what caused his imprisonment because as the British invades, invaded, they just assumed he was a spy. Any foreigner at that point was a spy. Uh, but then the British government got him out of prison because the Burmese government needed somebody to translate and there was no one on the planet able to translate from English to Burmese and Burmese to English better than Judson. Uh, sadly, Anne died while he was away on the assignment of translating for the British government. Fourth, death remained bitterly hard despite its commonness. Again, two of Judson's wives, seven of his 13 children died on the mission field. Now, it's likely in, in those days, you know, he sailed in 1822, I think it was. Some of those deaths would have occurred whether he was in Burma or back home in New England. Because even by 1900, the year 1900, 80 years after this, the, by percentage of the population, more people died from infectious diseases alone than all uh, the 10 top leading causes of death today. So infectious disease was by far the leading killer. Listen to this uh, description in the biography and tell me what this reminds you of. Hysterical panic gripped the whole country. The people had never seen the disease before and had no idea how to deal with it. What does that sound like? Come on. Sounds like our pandemic, right? The disease in question was, was cholera and at that point had never been seen in Burma before. 
And there was little that could be done for these illnesses. Uh, medical science was, was, I think they were still using things like uh, um, leeches and, and things. Uh, but in a journal entry from his third wife, Emily, who, by the way, was not yet born when he first sailed to India, so there's a, a wide age difference, she said this when he was really, really sick. I begged him to take calomel, which is mercury, and he would have administered to any other person, but in his own case, he procrastinated. But last night, he became alarmed, and for the first time, he took a dose of rhubarb and calomel. I am afraid, however, that it is too late, for he is in a terrible condition this morning. The last resort is a sea voyage. Okay, this is a cutting-edge medical science, mercury and sea voyages. And I read this over and over throughout this 500-page biography that this guy's sick. He took a sea voyage. This person's sick. They take a sea voyage. Now, I've never been on those fantastically large cruise ships, but I've been told you can still get seasick on those. Imagine now you're, you're sick to the point of death, and you're sent out on this large sailboat upon the rough oceans to get better. It's just uh, inconceivable uh, to me. But before these days of modern medicine were absolutely horrible, but, but I think here's where we tend to think, whether it's uh, Judson or anybody else, you know, in centuries uh, gone by, we think, you know, death was so common and the, and the infant mortality rate and child mortality rate and people didn't live long and all these infectious diseases. It must be the case that death was so common it was somehow easier to deal with. I don't know about you, but I, I sort of had that thinking myself. And, and I, I'm convinced that's mistaken, this idea. I think we need to understand that if one death was grievous, ten deaths was ten times as grievous. While Judson was away doing translation work, and remember, this is right after his year and a half in prison, someone brought him a letter and told him before he opened it, it said, your daughter Maria has died. He opened the letter and said, My dear sir, one who has suffered so much and with such exemplary fortitude, there need but little preface to tell a tale of distress. It were cruel indeed to torture you with doubt and suspense. To sum up the unhappy tidings in a few words, Mrs. Judson is no more. So the letter carrier was mistaken. It wasn't his baby that had died, Maria, but his wife who had died, and he got that letter a full month after she had died. And then later on, he uh, was talking to the person that was uh, with Anne near her death, and these were her, her last words. I must die alone and leave my little one, but as it is the will of God, I acquiesce in his will. I am not afraid of death, but I am afraid I shall not be able to bear these pains Tell the teacher that the disease was most violent and I could not write. Tell him how I suffered and died. Tell him all you see. Imagine the, the, the pain that was. Not only is he away when she dies, not only is it a month before he learns of her death, but then he learns after the fact that she suffered so before she died. About 10 years later, he married his second wife named Sarah, but long before that, she was married to another missionary in Burma. Her husband died, and he wrote her um, a note, and you can see the pain and suffering in, in these words. 
He says, you are now drinking the bitter cup whose dregs I am somewhat acquainted with. And though for some time you have been aware of its approach, I venture to say it is far bitterer than you expected. I can assure you that months and months of heart-rending anguish are before you. Take the bitter cup with both hands. You will soon learn a secret that there is sweetness at the bottom. It's actually a, a shorter quote of, uh, he said more things that were, sounded just as, as non-comforting, right? As you read this, I thought, what's wrong with this guy? Doesn't he know how to encourage somebody? Doesn't he how, know how to comfort somebody? But then I realized, you know, I, I think he's got it about right. We, we don't, this is not how we do it because I, we tend to cover up pain and death uh, just a little bit uh, too much, put a bandaid on that and say, I know it's hard, but it's, it'll get better. Don't worry, it, it'll be fine. But what he's doing here is acknowledging the depth of the pain, the depth of the suffering, the the depth of the grief to the point of saying, you know what, it's bad now, it's probably going to get worse. But as you drink the cup with both hands, you will certainly learn the secret. There is a sweetness at the bottom, so it's difficult now, but God will eventually carry you through. I think that's a good way. I think there's a lot to learn, even from that one quote. Toward the end of his life, he had a a powerful reflection on his sufferings, and he said this, If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. Just before he left for his final sea voyage, which was the voyage in which he died, he said to his wife Emily, If otherwise I am willing and glad to die now, I leave myself entirely in the hands of God to be disposed according to his holy will. And while he was dying, he related the degree of suffering, his own suffering now, to his traveling companion and said this, How few there are who suffer such torment, who die so hard. Judson was buried in a wooden coffin, weighted down with sand, and put over the edge of the ship. Number five, he experienced deep depression and great pride. Here's a part of his story. We don't normally hear of these wonderful, amazing missionaries and leaders, but also had this deep brokenness, but it needs to be understood. Shortly after the death of his third child, Maria, and his wife, Anne, Judson entered into this several years long depression. And during that time, among other things, he he delved deeply into the Catholic mystic Madame Guyon, some of you might be familiar with that person, taught, among other things, sinless perfectionism, a lot of other troubling beliefs, a lot of uh, deep mysticism. And he went into this extended period of seclusion. He gave away all his money. He had a little hut that he called the Hermitage. And three years later, he had still not found relief. And he wrote this to now his dead wife's two sisters, Have either of you learned the art of real communion with God? God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. Now, now we're talking, you know, 10, 15 years into his missionary work, and he has no sense of God's presence whatsoever. It was during that period he began to come to terms with something far worse than infectious diseases, hidden pride. His biographer relates... 
He began to suspect that his real motive in becoming a missionary had been ambition to be the first American foreign missionary, the first missionary to Burma, the first translator of the Bible into Burmese, first in his own eyes, in the eyes of men. He had a lust to excel. He had always known that his self-pride and desire to stand out were serious flaws in his nature. They made his entire missionary career up to now a kind of monstrous hypocrisy, a method of securing prominence and praise without admitting it to himself. He had deluded himself. Think about that. Here we have this trailblazing, faith-filled, first-ever missionary from America, and he was just as broken as you and me. But the Lord did humble his pride and began to lift his grief and depression. He began to grow in humility and grace. And about a year later, he wrote a, a tract with the title Advice to Missionaries that was then printed and, and shared all over the world, especially in America and Great Britain. And he wrote this, Beware of pride, not the pride of proud men, that's the kind that's most obvious, but the pride of humble men. That secret pride, which is apt to grow out of the consciousness that we are esteemed by the great and good. He's clearly thinking about himself. In order to check its operations, it may be well to remember how we appear in the sight of God. Isn't that the, the, the standard always? Not how I'm doing in, in compared to others. How I'm doing before God. How we should appear in the sight of our fellow men if they really knew our hearts, if all were known. Endeavor to let all be known. Confess your faults freely and as publicly as circumstances will require or admit. Improve the opportunity for subduing your pride. There's one quote that we could take with us. Improve the opportunity for subduing your pride. One biographer wrote this. Though his creed was as conservative as ever, the love and grace of God took a larger and larger place in his heart in teaching. And then not long, just before he died, he's pretty much on his deathbed, he said this, I know all that and feel it in my inmost heart, lying here on my bed, his deathbed, when I could not talk. I have had such views of the loving condescension of Christ and the glories of heaven as I believe are seldom granted to mortal man. I am willing to live a few longer if it should so be so ordered. So he went from great pride and unbelief almost uh, to great sense of God's presence and love. Number seven is obvious. He possessed a tireless missionary zeal. Now, you put his pride in the mix there, right? In realizing that, yes, some of that tireless missionary zeal was for self-aggrandizement, uh, but some of it was genuine and certainly spirit-driven. It's why he was in Burma in the first place, right? As I said, it was six years before they saw their first convert, and all, remember all the groundbreaking that, that would have happened before that, and here's how he related that story. He says, I begin to think that the grace of God has reached his heart, this, this first convert. He expressed sentiments of repentance for his sins and faith in the Savior. The substance of his profession is that from the darkness and uncleanness and sins of his whole life, he has found no other Savior than Jesus Christ. Nowhere else, nowhere else can he look for salvation, and therefore he proposes to adhere to Christ and worship him all his life long. That's the kind of 
converts, solid converts uh, that came out of their ministry. And he was very careful not to declare someone saved or to allow them to be baptized until he was as confident as possible in their conversion. And this caution helped to produce very solid believers, uh, which produced solid churches. One of the first converts expressed great faith in God's work through the gospel and said this, Notwithstanding present difficulties and dangers, it's to be remembered that this work is not yours or ours, but the work of God. If he gives light, the religion will spread. Nothing can impede it. Imagine a young convert in this other world saying, nothing will stop the gospel. Gospel proclamation was a slow, painful process with 38 years worth of grief But by the time Judson died, there was an estimated 100 churches, dozens of missionaries, and approximately 8,000 believers where the gospel had never been preached before. Last observation this morning. Some religious freedom is necessary for missions and evangelism. And there's always been this fine line between religious freedom and persecution. This was true for the Judsons in Burma. It's still true for us today, all around the world, you can see this uh, reflected in the 2020 watch list of the world's most dangerous, most persecuted countries, uh, list of nations there, and you can see Myanmar, which is now for the last 30 or 40 years, the, the, the name of Burma, it's number 19 on the list, so it has always been uh, a place of persecution. It's not in the top of the list, uh, but it's still high up there. Uh, And it's so much persecution that now almost 10,000 Burmese Christians have settled next door to us in Iowa all in the past 10 years. In fact, since 2010, 40% of Iowa's population growth has come from immigration. And part of the problem is Burma has this ongoing 70-year civil war. It's the longest-running civil war in the entire world. In the past three years alone, almost a million Muslims have fled from Burma because of persecution. So the Buddhists there are equal opportunity oppressors. As they're able, the the Judsons use their contacts within the government, as I noted before, to request more religious freedom. So even as foreigners, they're, they're petitioning the government for more help and for more freedoms. But all throughout his 38 years in Burma, the, this level of persecution would, would ebb and flow constantly. So they would have uh, one local governor, and this would be a kind person, and they'd become friends with him, and their wives would become close friends, and then he would move away, and some absolute tyrant would move in, and it would get horrible. So this constant ebbing and flowing of persecution all during that time, such that his, again, third wife, Emily, recorded this enlightening comment after almost 38 years of missionary expansion. Listen to what she said. But Adoniram could no longer deny that the prospects for real missionary work were far darker than they had been 30 years before. She's saying, it's getting worse and worse, not better. So wherever the gospel is proclaimed, there will always be persecution But you can see from this list of nations that the worst of them have essentially zero toleration for missionary work. 
And when religious freedom is reduced to essentially zero freedoms, there is essentially zero gospel proclamation there. Gospel work, if it grows at all, it grows incredibly slowly and in the shadows and in great secrecy. Now, there's one country on here that we hear a lot about in terms of persecution that's not on there, and that's China. It's actually 23rd on the list, so it's high up and not nearly as high. And it's interesting, though, they, we hear about the persecution that happens all the time, but they've also had, you know, tens of millions of conversions in the last 50 years. So there's been a tremendous ongoing revival in China. So, so China is one of those countries that has a lot of persecution, but not so much that, that it squashes all gospel proclamation. So do you see the point here? This, this balance between, yes, always persecution, but there has to be, it's necessary to have some level of religious freedom for the gospel to grow. Iowa has two more fascinating links to Burma. Uh, in addition to the, the Burmese uh, refugees I mentioned. Arthur, Arthur and Laura Carson were raised in Iowa, became missionaries to the Chin people who lived 500 miles north of where the Judsons ministered. Here is, I didn't show you a map of Myanmar or Burma, nestled there in between the the most northeastern part of India and, and Thailand. And it's hard to tell how large these countries are, you know, in Southeast Asia, but if you take it and plop it on top of the United States, that's what it looks like. Uh, so it looks about approximately the size of four Midwestern states, if you add it all together. And so here's where the Judsons ministered. In 1822, they landed. In 1899, the Carsons uh, again, that's 500 miles north, so uh, they were starting all over again. So when the Carsons landed, uh, and there's, you know, 100 different dialects in, in Burma, so they had to start all over with their own translations, their own government contacts, their own uh, friendship evangelism, and restart that process all over again. Um, and such that and again, they, you know, they arrived uh, 80 years after the Judsons, but because of their work, today over 90% of the Chin people are professing believers. And one of those Chin converts lives in Iowa and served at Living Waters this past summer and was at our church a bunch of times uh, this summer. I don't know if you met him or not, but he is pictured on the far right there. His name is Sui. And I had a fascinating conversation at our house with Swee this summer and then called him a couple weeks ago to learn the rest of the story. Swee lived in Burma until he was 10 years old. So he experienced persecution, but not, not like if he had been there 20 or 30 years or more. But his family eventually fled to Malaysia to escape that persecution, but it turned out Malaysia was only slightly better than Burma. So they applied for uh, religious asylum and thankfully were granted that. And they're among the uh, eight or 9,000 Burmese refugees that have settled in Iowa. They landed in uh, Des Moines area. Sweet told me that there are 10 Chin churches in Des Moines, and almost every Burmese person attends church. And the largest Chin church has about 300 attendants, so uh, a lot of health and uh, populated churches there. The Chin and Quran people are the two largest Burmese ethnicities in Iowa. And like a lot of immigrants, most of them have some sort of factory job, which is, uh, you know, not always the best job, but they're grateful to be in the United States and to be experiencing this freedom to worship. 
But mostly, in all of that background in the story, what I love about Sui is his calling. God has laid a calling upon his life to become a pastor. And he felt the call as a young boy, and, and that, that call just uh, is confirmed over and over. It's becoming stronger and stronger over the past several years. He is currently finishing his undergrad degree at Emmaus Bible College and is hoping to go on to seminary when he graduates. Graduates. He has a lot of support from his home church in Iowa, and they want him to come back and eventually serve as their youth pastor. And, and to me, it's absolutely amazing that Swee fled persecution in Burma, now wants to be in vocational ministry. He wants to do the very thing that caused his family difficulty back home. And he's deeply concerned for his own generation, because he's already seeing in these, uh, uh, he's been here less than 10 years, in that time, that new generation is losing the gospel. He's very concerned about it. He's praying that that generation will truly understand and embrace the gospel. He also shared with me that he has learned that that prayer is, is everything, he thinks. He says, if you're serious about ministry, you have to depend on prayer. Good knowledge is essential. But ministry is different. It requires constant prayerful dependency. To use our theme from earlier, I would say, I think you would say, Sweet is Jesus Christ's man. He knows Jesus and, and can share his writings. He feels called to share Jesus with those who don't yet know Jesus or to strengthen the faith of those who do know him. He wants to stand on the shoulders of men like Adoniram Judson and Arthur Carson. So what about you? Are you Jesus Christ man? Are you Jesus Christ woman? Would you go to the other side of the world to tell others about Jesus? Would you dare to walk across the street and tell somebody about Christ? Is God calling you to something, but you have shied away from it? You've known that this is something he's asking you to do, and you're afraid of it. You're not sure uh, how you're going to do it, if you have the support to it, if you have the faith to do that. Are you willing to go anywhere and do anything that the Lord asks of you? Are you Jesus Christ's man? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for men and women for centuries, broken, sinful men and women who you have called to faith-stretching ministry and endeavors. Judson is, is a man just like us. so filled with pride, self-ambition, yet a genuine faith and love of Christ in the gospel. Father, I would ask that, that your spirit, even now, if it be your will, you would tap some folks on the shoulder this morning. 
our, our, our callings, our, our decisions to follow you, the next step. Sometimes they, they come all at once. Sometimes they develop slowly. But often we're, we're just not paying attention. Often we're, we're fighting against that. We know it's you speaking to us, but we run the opposite direction. So inspired by Judson, if possible, but mostly inspired by your Holy Spirit, what do you want us to do? What, what sins have we loved too much? And we know we're supposed to fight those. What callings have we denied or run away from What hard things are you asking us to do? Father, you, you have to make us willing. You have to break the pride, even the, the pride of a, of a humble man, of a humble woman. It's harder to see. But it has to be broken again and again. So by your spirit, do this. In Jesus' name, amen.